all I could think was, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I, and my sister told me um, recently, she said, that's what you said to me on the phone. I don't know how I'm going to do this. I don't know how I'm going to move forward from this point. Because Molly, I mean, she was my best friend. She called I, she called me her best friend. I called her my right hand. I, and I'd done that for a long time. Um, she was just this person in my life that I could always count on. Welcome to the very first episode of EverStory, the podcast that features real stories about how everyday people experience the transformational light and love of Jesus despite struggling in their darkest moments. As a bonus to our new listeners, this is a two-part episode, and both episodes are available right now. Earlier this year, I interviewed Tracy Matheson for a film we produced over Easter. From our very first conversation, it was clear to me that she is a unique force, a powerful example of resilience and strength. She's a mother who, in 2017, endured the unspeakable loss of her daughter. Despite living through the darkest moments imaginable, she began experiencing Jesus' unquestionable love. And after a string of inspirational moments, she began a campaign of healing to honor her daughter's memory. By the end of this story, you will be truly blessed to see how God can turn even our worst fears into a mobilization for good. A word of caution... This episode deals with sensitive topics, protect young ears, or anyone who might be a victim of violence. Now, sit back and enjoy this episode of EverStory. Tracy Matheson was a high school junior when she met her husband David in Fort Worth, Texas. They both attended the University of Oklahoma and married soon after graduation. Their son Nick and daughter Molly soon followed. Feeling that their family needed to continue growing, The Mathesons adopted two sons from South Korea, Max and Ben. David and Tracy were both, as Tracy puts it, surface-level believers. Growing up, their families attended church but didn't have a living relationship with Jesus. Still, they knew God and understood the importance his love would have on their family, so they placed an intentional emphasis on raising children who would also know Jesus. They volunteered at their youth group, summer Bible camps, and mission trips. And as her children grew in their faith, David and Tracy grew in theirs, and this growing faith would play a pivotal role in the years to come. Molly Molly was the only girl out of four children. Uh, she had the coveted role of only daughter, and um, once she was old enough to recognize the status that she believed that carried. Um, She certainly liked to flaunt it. Um, As a young girl, she was full of sass, very stubborn. Um, If you thought you were gonna convince her to do something, um, you were mistaken. Um, I can remember my family, my parents arranged to have a photographer come to the beach. We were all on a big family vacation and they wanted to have some really nice family photos taken. And so they got this very well-known photographer to come and take these photos and uh, it was time for Molly and Nick to be photographed Ben and Max were not this was when Molly and Nick were young and there Molly was absolutely not going to smile for these photos no way no how she was going to pout and she was going to look angry and um, it I just remember as all basically almost standing on our heads trying to coax some sort of pleasant expression out of her. Eventually, my dad gave her a peppermint to 
suck on. And that whatever that did, (laughs) we got a couple photos that would pass as a smile. And the photo that hangs on the wall right next to my bed, if you look at it carefully, you can see that she's got this peppermint in her mouth. And, you know, that was Molly. And then as a, you know, middle school girl, she kind of went through that stage where she was certain that I know nothing. Um, I'm just a dumb mom who couldn't possibly know anything or understand anything and often would let me know. And there were moments where I didn't like her so much. <laughs> she she could be a little spiteful. But then things, when she was a sophomore in high school, we moved from Florida to Texas. And that's a hard time for anyone to move um, and kind of start completely over. And she left a place where we, we loved our life in Florida. We had a great neighborhood. We had a great church. We had a great school system. We had lots of really, really good friends. And to just leave all of that behind was, was a lot for all of us. Following the move to Texas, Tracy began experiencing God's love in a new way. She realized that despite the loss of community and connection they enjoyed in Florida, she was now experiencing the joy of growing closer to Molly. And so we're thrust into this new community. We started up in Keller and Molly didn't have any friends. And I had some friends in Fort Worth, but, you know, not not the community that we had had. And she and I were sort of thrust into this. Well, uh, she was all I had and I was all she had. And so we, we got to spend a lot of time with one another, hanging out, watching our television shows or taking care of, you know, whatever errands. And I watched this this friendship kind of blossom. And I went from someone who couldn't possibly know anything to someone who she really liked me and I liked her. I was aware of it in the moment that this is a really special thing. I enjoy my daughter, and I would listen to friends with similarly aged daughters who didn't enjoy their daughters um, because kids can be (laughs) they can be challenging. But and, and that friendship just kind of grew from then to where, you know, her friends would come to the house and hang out. She would laugh and say, Mom, they come to the house because of you. They want to see you. So we had we had a lot of really special times of hosting the prom party and hosting the graduation party and providing a place for kids to land and know that they are welcome and safe. She poured herself into her children and their school experiences, and before long, she created the home that their friends loved to visit. After graduation, Molly left for the University of Arkansas to pursue her dreams of becoming a social worker. By 2015, she returned to Fort Worth to finish college at Tarleton State. In 2016, she found a garage apartment near TCU and began living the life of a young, independent woman. Everything seemed to be progressing as planned, until April 10, 2017, when their world would forever change. Before I talk about April 10th, I feel like I should tell you about April 9th, which was a Sunday. And my husband and I had had the opportunity to go to the Masters golf tournament, and we came home that weekend and we had brought various souvenirs for the kids. And so Molly came to the house to have dinner with us. I recall the evening just being not unusual at all, especially enjoyable. Um, We sat around and laughed a lot. Molly and her dad had a 
a very similar sense of humor, both very funny. They were the only one that thought the other one was funny. And so they just sort of back and forth trying to one up the next one. And that wasn't unusual for us to just sit and laugh because she was a funny, funny kid who um, just kept us all in stitches. But it it was going to be a good and very busy week. She left our house. Um, I remember she gave me a hug. She liked to turn her head to the side so that her neck, her chin could tickle my neck when she gave me a hug. She thought that was funny. And I did, too, because it tickled. Um, Gave us a hug, and, you know, we told her, we love you, and off she went. That night, she posted on my Facebook wall something about my daughter is the best because she loved to rub it in everyone's nose that she was the only daughter and surely she must be the most favorite child. So the next day is a Monday and I got up and did what I would do. I went and worked out. I came home. I had some work to do at the house um, on my computer. I was doing real estate at the time. And the phone rings um, just before four o'clock and it was Molly's boss. And Carissa was saying that Molly had not shown up for work. She followed up very quickly with, I'm not upset with Molly because she's 10 minutes early if she's late. And I found it odd because I knew Molly was supposed to go to work. And so that didn't make a whole lot of sense. So I hopped in the car almost immediately and started calling Molly and there was no answer. Um, And I'm thinking, you know, maybe she took a nap. You know, she liked to, um, she was a lover of naps. And so uh, that wouldn't be unusual. Maybe she just overslept. And I called a friend, a friend of mine who, who also knew Molly. Molly would babysit for her, lived across the street. And so I called Grace and I said, hey, do you see Molly's blue car? And Grace told me, yeah, it's parked on the curb where it is always parked. And so I get to the garage apartment and I park and I found myself running down the driveway. At this point, I kind of worked myself up into, you know, what could have happened. And I got to the back of the driveway to where the door to Molly's apartment was, and I knocked, and I knocked again, and there was no answer. Then I realized I hadn't tried the doorknob, so maybe I should try. Well, so the doorknob, it was unlocked. So I went inside, and it was just a, you know, I guess you might call it like a studio apartment. There was not a lot of space to it, a living area and a bedroom, and that was about it. And there was no sign of Molly. Um, It was messy, which was not unusual because she was not a housekeeper. Um, (laughs) But And I walked back out into the courtyard and was calling her name. And and all this time, things are, my heart is racing and I'm getting more and more panicked. And then I realized I had not gone into her bathroom, which was sort of at the back of the apartment. So I went back inside and I walked back around the corner and there was her body in the shower, just down on the floor of the shower. She was wet. She was not dripping wet, but she was damp. And there she was in the bottom of the shower. And it did not make sense. And I I think I must have run back out into the courtyard and, you know, yelled for Grace saying, you know, there's something wrong. We need to call 911. She wasn't awake. I wasn't sure if she was breathing. So Grace calls 911. I am trying to figure out how to use my phone, which was was not a simple task in that moment. Eventually, the homeowner, um, she arrived back in the garage apartment, and she and I are both <laughs> panicking, for lack of a better word, and eventually connect with 911. You know, we explained this situation, and 
because she was wanting me to try CPR. And at, at whatever point, I realized it, that is not going to work. I, I knew that she was dead. I can just remember the operator saying, you know, we need to help her. I need you to help me help her. And I'm screaming, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. She's dead. She's dead. At this point, Tracy paints the picture of living a surreal reality, second by second, confronted by the greatest fear a mother will ever experience. A terrifying mixture of disbelief and paralyzing distress. Her daughter has passed away, and she realizes that even the simple tasks, like dialing a phone, have become completely impossible. As I reflect back on that time, literally I was out of control. And eventually the paramedics come arrive, um, come around the corner and tell me that they're going to, obviously they're going to check on Molly. And they were gone, I would say, probably a matter of seconds before they came back to me and said that they have in fact confirmed that she is deceased. And, And then I've got to figure out how to call my husband, who's at work, and tell him that our daughter is dead, which, you know, was this Again, how do I dial my phone? I I just remember, like, I think I have to unlock it. And what is his number? And how do I, the sequence of steps to do that? And he answers his phone. And I just said, she's dead. She's dead. And, And he's like, what are you talking about, Tracy? I'm like, Molly's dead. She's dead. As emergency services arrived, the police department and detectives began their investigation. Tracy waited helplessly for her husband to arrive. For Tracy, a mother still in shock, the natural probative questions began swelling inside. Why and how could this happen? I had known people who had died by suicide. It was all, I would say, always a shock. It was not hard for me to imagine that, well, I mean, maybe that could have happened or maybe she had some illness that I wasn't aware of. She was always Googling symptoms. Um, she she self-diagnosed that she was allergic to the cold. So maybe she had some crazy, you know, heart condition that we didn't know about. Um, the detective, he made mention of homicide. Uh, that seemed completely like that couldn't possibly be. But, you know, he threw that out there. And um, he told us that they would be investigating and and looking into exactly why this 22-year-old girl who literally the night before had, you know, every reason to look forward to an amazing week, a busy week, um, and had shown no signs of any indication that there were any plans to take her life, but who knew? By the time Tracy and David returned home, their adult son Nick and young sons Ben and Max, just 16 and 17, had all gathered to meet them. By now, her motherly instincts had emerged as she struggled with how to guide Molly's siblings through the grief of losing their sister. But moreover, how would she cope with the loss of her daughter, who had also grown into her best friend? How do you do this with these these young people who they had such a close, close bond with their sister? She adored her brothers. She was their biggest cheerleader. She was there to support them in everything and vice versa. They the boys loved her. And, you know, when you think about four kids and boy and boys and girl and, you know, all the drama that can bring. I just remember, you know, hugging them and it was awful awful to watch them 
have to figure out how to deal with this terrible news that their sister is dead. All I could think was, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I, and my sister told me um, recently, she said, that's what you said to me on the phone. I don't know how I'm going to do this. I don't know how I'm going to move forward from this point. Because Molly, I mean, she was my best friend. She called I, she called me her best friend. I called her my right hand. I, and I'd done that for a long time. Um, she was just this person in my life that I could always count on. She was willing and available and pleasant, and um, and we just enjoyed this really close relationship. And so now, this thing has landed, <laughs> this this unthinkable, um, unbearable tragedy. So the following day, April 11th, I can remember I, I got up and I had to let the world know that Molly was dead. And I remember sitting down thinking, I'm going to make a social media post because that's how we communicate things. And, um, you know, how in the world do I even do that? Uh, but I did. Um, and then, you know, people, word was spreading and people started showing up at our house um, and just being there for us. Uh as we're, we don't know why she's dead, we just know that she is dead. And at some point that afternoon, it wasn't terribly late, um, the, my husband called me back to the bedroom with our son, Nick, who at that point was, you know, he was married. He was a, a young adult. And he explained that the detective had called and that they had figured out the cause of her death. And um, he told us that they had ruled it a homicide, that she had been strangled. And I, my recollection of that is that I, I think I made a sound, um, a really awful sound, and I think I've kind of fell to the ground. Tracy explains that in the first days following the loss of her daughter, she struggled with questions about her passing. Like any mother, even following the loss of a child, her heart was with her child. Did she suffer? Was she alone? Was she in heaven? It was at this time that Tracy began feeling Jesus moving and leading her to search for answers. What she discovered would ultimately lead her down a path that she continues to pursue to this day. Having a child die has got to be the worst kind of pain for any parent. Um, I can't think of anything worse. When, you, when, you, when the cause of death is by violence caused by another person, I, in my opinion, I think it takes the pain um, to a different level. And, and I'm not trying to compare, however, the thought that there was this moment where violence was happening and, you know, what that had to have been like for your child is, is, is unthinkable. Um, and so in the immediate, I, I was just sort of stuck in this place of just total, um, fear of what all of that had to have been like for her and how am I going to figure out how to move forward from this? How are we going to figure out how to move forward as a family now with just three boys? Um, how are my husband and I going to come to terms and, and um, walk with this gaping hole in our heart? Um and and it, I wasn't I, I was just sort of grasping, looking for 
any sign of, I'm going to be able to make it through this. I'd been wondering, what's going to be the best way for her to have died? You know, and that's kind of a weird thing to even say out loud. But as I'm dealing with this truth that my daughter's dead, well, what would I prefer? Is it going to be better that it was suicide or is it going to be better that it was a health condition? And Nick looked at me when we knew it was homicide and he said, Mom, she wanted to be here. She wanted to be here. And, you know, I that was comforting in that moment to know that, you know, she did not take her life. Um, but then, you know, the, the reality of what that meant, that that there what those moments must have been like and and my fear of oh was she afraid was she did she feel alone what what it, it was it was all consuming and i i started i needed to know about heaven i mean heaven had always been this kind of nebulous concept to me of you know it's this place in the clouds and when you die you go to heaven and i hadn't given it a whole lot of thought um but I started digging in. I read, I read a book called Heaven, um, and I listened to people who had, you know, terminal illnesses who had had really kind of supernatural encounters um, that really confirmed that heaven was real. And and I started thinking of and imagining heaven in a way that I had never done before. Um, and then I needed to understand more about what those moments must have been like. So I can remember making an appointment with my pastor, and I needed to talk to him about some stuff. One was, was she alone? I needed to know, was there any biblical basis that would give me an answer to that? And he very kindly listened to me as I, I'm sure I rambled for a while but then he he um, assured me that, no, she was not alone. And he went to scripture in um, the book of Acts when Stephen is being stoned and he's being killed. And in in scripture, it says that Stephen looked up to heaven and he saw God and he saw Jesus standing next to his father looking at him, which was confirmation that in this moment when Stephen is dying, he saw Jesus. And and that was exactly what I needed to hear so that I could know that when whatever was happening to Molly, that she knew that he was with her and that in, in, in an instant from the moment she was alive to the moment she died, there was no, it was, she was in the arms of Jesus. And, and that's, that's what I carried with me to help quiet the fears that would come up in my mind, uh, she wasn't alone. He was with her um, in that moment, and she has been with him ever since that moment. And that brought me the peace that I needed to figure out how to do this. In part two, Tracy begins a Christ-centered journey of healing. Despite struggling to understand why her daughter was taken from her, she was also confronted with the reality that the very system designed to protect her may have enabled her death. When many mothers would have crumbled under the unbearable darkness around her, 
Tracy followed a series of inspirational winks from God that not only pulled her into the light, but empowered her to use her experience as a ministry for good and a blessing for victims of violence. John 1.5 says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. When we feel lost in a world of hopelessness, only Jesus brings us the unending light that leads us out of chaos, regardless of the degree of our pain. Join us in the next episode of EverStory. Don't worry, we will have more stories of hope and transformation in the weeks to come. Michelle tells her harrowing story of divorce during COVID and her subsequent walk with Jesus to find a new Christ-centered life. Marisol shares her inspiring story of leaving the Catholic Church to find a relationship with Jesus, only to find herself part of a cult that had brainwashed her into believing that she would never have a true relationship with Jesus again. All right here on EverStory. EverStory is a production of Doxology Bible Church in Fort Worth, Texas. If this is your first time listening, make sure and hit subscribe and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Doxology Bible. Want to share your story of transformation? Message us on Facebook or email us at stories at doxology.church. 